There's a true story. I think I told it here a few years ago. It's a true story. It happened around the year 2000. A pastor in California, one Sunday morning in church, um, asked for 100 volunteers. And he called them to the front of the sanctuary. And he handed them all crisp, clean $100 bills. And, you know, they're, they're sort of standing there and the congregation's standing there and sitting there in a state of confusion. And he lays down some guidelines for them. He says, first, this is not your money. It's God's money. Second, we want you to use it. Don't just spend it. Invest it in the kingdom. Do something creative with it. Advance the cause of Christ with it. And third, he said, in 90 days, you're going to come back and stand in front of the congregation and let them know what you did with it. And there were some wonderful stories about how people use this money to help people in the community, and, and God blessed it in many ways. It's a, it's a small scale, but it is vivid application of the parable of the talents, which we are looking at this morning. I'm, I'm assuming that pastor was preaching on the parable of the talents that day. I would think so. But that's the parable we're looking at from Matthew 25. And uh, no, we're not going to repeat the experiment. Uh, the parable... Uh, just prior to this text, the one we looked at last week, the parable of the ten virgins, right? we saw that was about being watchful, about being prepared, about having, having a, uh, a lamp full of oil, being ready for the bridegroom's appearance, which had been sort of unexpectedly delayed. Right? This text, our text today, answers, okay, what does it mean more fully? What does it mean to be alert and to have oil in your lamps, to be ready for the bridegroom? Surely it does not mean just stargazing or skygazing. What does it mean? What does it look like? And that's what this, this text is about. And that's why Jesus tells these parables, at least in Matthew's gospel, Matthew puts them back to back. So we'll make three points. They're the points there on the outline in your bulletin. Investments, reckoning, and application. So, so Matthew 25, beginning of verse 14, the investments. The kingdom here is said to be like a man. So remember, it's very important to get it. These parables are about the kingdom, right? So just keep that in mind. We're talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like a man going on a journey. He calls his servants and he entrusts them with his property or his wealth, if you will. You all know the story, right? There are three servants. One gets five talents. One gets two. One gets one. And a talent was, a, was a, a unit of money. And it was a lot of money. It was equivalent to about 20 years' pay. One talent for a day laborer in this time. Which is, which is why I think the NIV uses the phrase bag, you know, bags of gold. Right. So a single talent, the smallest amount given here, would be between, scholars debate the exact number, but it's something between two hundred dollars and $400,000 in today's money. Right? So enormous sums of money are involved here. Enormous sums. These are not $100 bills. The king, the king has poured his substance and his bounty out on them. Right? And he leaves them his wealth, and of course he's not leaving it with them for safekeeping. He expects profit, right? which means he expects investment and improvement. 
Luke, Luke tells a version of this parable where the master says, do business. Like engage in commerce until I return. And so when we look at the parable as a whole, it's clear that the talents are meant to stand for more than just our economic assets, right? Because very few people are entrusted with this kind of economic wealth. Right? The talents are all that we have, our time, our treasure, and our economic treasures. Right? So that everybody plays the game of life with house money. Right? It's, it's a sheer gift. It, it's purely gratuitous at the beginning, and it's abundant. From your being, to your breath, to all your aptitudes and talents, either naturally or gifted by the Spirit in addition to what you have naturally. It's all house money. But the house expects the money to be used well. But even more fundamentally than that, it's, it's more accurate to see the talents as referring to the gift of the kingdom. Because this is the parable is about what the kingdom is like. The kingdom of God is the bestowal of the master's wealth on us. Right? You have been given the gift through the spirit of the ascended Christ. You have been given the foretaste of the kingdom. This is what Advent means, right? This is what the incarnation of the word means. The kingdom of God has come upon you. This is why Jesus preaches, repents, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to accept the kingdom, to be inducted into the kingdom, to be baptized into the kingdom, as we are, is to accept a sacred trust. Right? And it's to be placed, if you will, under a holy obligation then. Right? The kingdom calls one to labor. Full-bodied labor. And that causes us to reevaluate things. To be reoriented. And again, Advent is very useful here. So, you've been given the kingdom of God through the gift of the risen Christ Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But the gift of the kingdom does not mean that everybody has the same amount or the same talents or the same capacities or aptitudes. We need one another. Notice verse 15. It says that the man distributes these talents to each according to his ability. In other words, we all receive the kingdom in our own unique way. And with the kingdom are furnished to be servants in the kingdom. God knows his children. He knows your aptitudes and your potentials, just like any good parent would. And he entrusts his children with just the right amount. So right at the outset, we see that the issue here is not how much we have or how much we start with. It's how faithful are we with the king's treasure. There's no one in here that has not been bestowed the treasure of the heavenly king. And the issue is faithfulness. The issue is not, well, I don't have that gift or that that aptitude or that talent. You have the gift of the Spirit. You have the gift of the kingdom and you have it in your own unique way. God has given you according to your ability. Right? Then at the end of verse 15, the king goes away. The king goes away. Now, I don't want to pass over this because it means that the fundamental, irreplaceable gift that we have is the gift of time. The gift of time. Time is like an hourglass, 
but it's, it's like it's glued to the table. It's not an hourglass you can flip back over. You can't reverse it. You don't get any of it back. Right? And anyone who's done any investing knows the time value of investments, right? Right? Some of us, maybe your investments would look a little better if we were 20 years younger. <laughs> when you start investing and how you invest matters, so time matters. So the world exists in the mercy of God between the ascension and the second coming, right? Again, Advent is the only season the church can ever possibly be in. That's the time of the church. She exists for the sake of what's outlined in this text, for this labor. What time is it, is the big Advent question. And we saw it in the call to worship today. It's the time when the night is far gone and the day is at hand. It's the time when the king is gone away. So we have this precious, precious gift of time. When I was very young, I shared an office at IBM with a man who was then in his late 50s. Oddly enough, this man had bought my childhood home, that home I grew up in, and he ends up as my roommate, my office mate at IBM. Dan, I think, knows who he is. He had this wonderful sense of humor. And he always told me that he would read the obituaries in the paper in the morning. And he, he would say, look, if I'm in there, it's bad news. But if I'm not in there, then I have to come in here and work with you, and that's still bad news. <laughs> but he was wrong about that, right? He was wrong about that. Because if you're not in there, it means the hourglass has not run out. It means you're living in the time of the church. It means you're living in the hour of grace. You're living in, in the kingdom. You're living in kingdom time. So you know the rest of the parable well, right? In the, the one who gets five talents, goes at once, puts the money to work, invests, gets five more. The one who has two talents does the same thing. They both achieve this remarkable 100% return on the king's generosity. The one who has the one talent, you know, digs a hole, puts it in the ground. He probably thinks this is prudent. This is safe. This is cautious. I mean, money is dangerous, right? Money is a power. You can't serve God and mammon. Money can defile. Money can harden. Money has risks to your, to your soul. Jesus says this over and over again. The rabbis, right, the rabbis had a saying that the safest thing you can do with money is to bury it. Right, this, we're, we're used to in the Christian tradition looking at this third investor here and thinking, oh, this guy's just, this is terrible. But he's just probably doing what the rabbis thought was wise. This is an apparently pious move. I'm not going to be affected by money. I'm not going to think about money. right? But it's a diluted perspective. So those are the investments. Secondly, here is this reckoning. After a long time, verse 19 says, the time of the church age, the time for kingdom business, right? the master calls the servants to settle accounts. This is the great advent fact. The master will return and he will settle accounts with us. He will judge the living and the dead. It's the end that drives the investment. This is the advent that we're anticipating. So anyway, the one who gets the five talents comes forward. There's a real genuine, sincere excitement here. Master, you entrusted me with five talents. Notice this in these men that come forth. This one 
he puts the accent on the original gift. Like he, he echoes back to God, you gave me this enormous wealth. You gave me these five talents. You gifted me with this original sum. He can barely contain his excitement. He says, see, look, I've gained five more. And the one who received two talents uses the exact same language. They both have this language of joy and excitement. They both receive the same commendation. Very famous commendation. It's in the text twice. It's in verse 21. It's in verse 23. So let's look at these words here. Um, well done, good and faithful servant. Right, these are the only words that matter at the end of your life. These are the only words that matter. We live in a, there's a lot of noise in the world. And there's a lot of things said to you and around you and about you. Right? But no human commendation. Or, by the way, no human condemnation will finally matter for us. Right? So Advent is reminding us, the text is reminding us of this, right? Advent purifies, it simplifies, it declutters, it focuses the mind, it produces sobriety. And Advent sobriety realizes we are living for nothing other than these magnificent words. Yes, we want to be encouraged. It's nice to get compliments along the way. And we need that. But we're living for these words. And the master continues. He says, you've been faithful over a little or a few things. It's interesting, right? They receive this enormous gift of wealth. But compared to the glory to be revealed, compared to the kingdom in its fullness, it's just a little. You received a little bit, he says. A few things. Right? So Advent, again, another function of it is to create this yearning. You have been given the gift of the kingdom. But in comparison to what you will get if you are faithful here, you've been given just a few things. And you will get many. Because it hasn't entered into the heart of man. What God has prepared for those who love him. Right? And the master says he's going to set them over many things. Now, it's hard to tell what, what, what this means, but it means at least this, right? That we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life, the full-orbed life of the world to come. We believe in a new heavens and a new earth. And we believe that faithfulness here means, believe it or not, more responsibility there. Or greater glory there. I will put you in charge of many things. There, work will be pure joy, pure glory, without frustrations, without any of the constraints without any of the stain of death on it. Remember, right? Man was made to work before the fall. We're created for labor. There's something just basic about hard work, consistent work across the span of a whole life that makes us fully human. Yes, work has been made more difficult because of the fall, but man was supposed to labor even before the fall. And man will labor in a certain kind of way, whatever that might mean, in glory. You were faithful with little here. I'm going to give you much there. So there's a sense also in which you're fitting your own soul. You're expanding and enlarging your own capacity for God himself and his, his kingdom in glory when you invest faithfully here. And of course, this also means that faithfulness now generally will get more responsibility even now. Right? There's, no, there's no retirement from a life of discipleship. And Calvin has this lovely saying where he says, 
let, us, let each of us remember that he's been created by God for the purpose of laboring and of being vigorously employed in his work. He says, and that not only for a limited time, but till death itself. So you may retire from your profession, but nobody retires from the responsibility for the talents given to them, right? And their investment of those talents across all of the time, the precious and irreplaceable time that God gives to us. So the master concludes the commendation with the greatest gift of all. He gives them an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Enter into the joy of your master. Right? This, is, this is nothing less than entry into the infinite, unmitigated joy of the triune God himself. God's own delight. God's own joy in being God. Right? God's own joy in his own light and life and love. This is the heart of the coming glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into escalated, everlasting communion. Joyful communion with the Holy Trinity. That is what we are laboring for. And Advent reminds us of this, right? We are investing and laboring and doing these things to hear these words and to receive that summons. That shapes the way we labor now. Now, it's occasionally brought up against this parable that there's a subtle form of salvation by works here, which there isn't, but I do want to say a word about it. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the people receive talents, they work with the talent, they get a reward. But what you need to notice in this text is the original sum. Right? The original sum is a pure gift. Right? And it's also important to see this. Notice this in the parable. There are rewards here. And those rewards correspond, they correspond in some way, an important way, to a life of faithfulness. But, but, they far exceed the performance. Right? They far exceed what might be merited. Entering into the everlasting joy of the Holy Trinity is not some sort of earned reward for a 100% return on investment. So we want to say this. And this comes up a lot. I can tell you, this whole question of faith and works and rewards comes up a lot with people. comes up a lot in the church. So I'm going to try and give it to you in one sentence, I think. We want to say this. Faithfulness is required. And it is rewarded. But the reward is still gracious. Right? The reward is of a whole other order. Eschatological, glorious communion with the Holy Trinity. So that, that, that allows us to kind of put a lot of the biblical data into perspective. The reward corresponds to, yet it far exceeds your faithfulness. And that brings us to the third servant in verse 24. He comes forward, this one, and rather than praising the gift, right? The others praise the gift, the original generosity of God, right? This one gives a speech, which is never a good sign. We saw Jonah like to give God speeches, um, and this speech is a slanderous piece of self-justification. It starts like this. Master, I knew you were a hard man. You know, the, the, the word for hard here is the word we get um, sclerosis from. Right? So it, it, it means unyielding, um, harsh, overly demanding, unmerciful. 
It's a vicious slander, is it not, on the character of God? It is a vicious slander of God. Yes, God is a just and righteous judge, but he's not a hard man. Right? The treatment of the first two servants, right? not to mention the original gifts, right? should have dissuaded him of this falsehood. But he continues and he says, you harvest where you've not sown, you gather where you've not scattered seed. The charge here is that God expects profit without investing. But again, the whole front end of the parable makes that look ridiculous. So this is essentially a charge on God. Not only is God hard or harsh, but he's miserly. You know, he's dishonest. What he's doing here really is likening God to Pharaoh, who says, look, I'm not going to give you any more straw, but I'm going to expect the same brick quota from you. God, this speech says, is like a capricious taskmaster. So it's very important to see because the Lord is going to deal harshly with this servant. This, is, this speech is not a modest error, right? It's a massive misunderstanding and distortion of the graciousness of our God. And this view of God led then and it leads now to fear. It leads to fear, an unhealthy fear, not the holy, clean fear of the Lord. So he says in verse 25, I was afraid. Of course he was afraid. Everyone would be afraid if he thought God was like this. I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Fear inhibits risk-taking. And life is just a risk. It's a series of risks. We certainly learned that this year, right? I mean, fear inhibits this ability to take risks. People just don't want to... Don't want to take any risk because they're afraid. This guy's afraid. So choices then, right, by their very nature, are going to eliminate other choices. If we want to keep all of our options open, right, if you want safety at all costs, you are not ready for the kingdom. Right? If, you, if you want safety at all costs, you're not ready for the kingdom. Investment means risk, and that means excluding other possible investments. But notice, here's what I want you to see here. Why does this man make this mistake? Let's just call it a hyper-cautiousness, right? Because it's based, it's based on his view of God. He has a view of the Heavenly Father, which is wrong. God is not sitting in heaven waiting for you to make a mistake so he can chastise you and berate you. That kind of God would not have sent his son for you. He, he knows we're going to stumble and falter. He knows our frame. He knows we're dust. He's our father. And often, though, you know, it's not just, it's not just that pagans or unbelievers make God in their own image. Christians are constantly making God in their own image. It's just something we do. It's, it's deep down in the human heart. If we have a personality bent a little bit this way, we tend to see God bent a little bit that way. If our personality is bent a little bit this way, we tend to see God bent a little bit this way. Right, you can see this in people, any, any observant person notices this. Right? This person has this particular set of gifts, and they just tend to read that back into God. Or they emphasize that part of God and not this other part of God. This person has a calling for this, and so they're always talking about God as that. And leaving the rest out, or, or maybe sublimating the rest, or maybe not getting everything in, as you might say, proportion and order. But it's very important here, right? Because this will create a distorted view of God. It's important to recognize that we ourselves are constantly making God over into our image. 
Right? Everybody tends to think God thinks kind of like them. On a higher plane, of course, in a pure way. But, you know, and so what does this do? This leads to paralyzing fear. At least with some personalities. Right? It leads to treating the gifts of God like they're family heirlooms. Right? Uh, Eugene Peterson, the, the Presbyterian pastor who did a lot of writings, influenced a lot of people in the 20th century, just died a couple years ago. He has this wonderful uh, image of the church in one of his books as, as a messy living room. Right? Like th- things, there's mud on the floor and there's stuff scattered all over because you know, this, is, this is not a museum. Right? This is not a place for family heirlooms. This is a place where people roll up their sleeves and get dirty. Right? So there's a sense in which we don't want to treat the gifts of God like heirlooms. They are, they're not to be guarded. They're to be given away. They're to be poured out. And a lot of this just depends on having the right view of God. Right? So... This servant says, now here he's probably expecting commendation. He says, see, here's what belongs to you. I didn't lose anything. I took a hyper-cautious approach, right? I put everything in uh, bonds and cash. And the master says this to him, you wicked, lazy servant. Notice, it's two things, right? He's wicked and lazy. The wickedness is, you have a slanderous view of your father. You've constricted the mercy and the graciousness and the bounty and the goodness and the generosity of your God. On the other hand, sloth, laziness, really is one of the seven deadly sins. It leads to fruitlessness. It's squandering the gifts of the kingdom. Don't be lazy. Right? Some of us maybe may have inclinations toward it, right? So, Then God repeats a portion of the servant's slanderous speech. But he's not agreeing with it. He's not agreeing that he reaps where he doesn't sow. Notice it's in the form of a question. You probably noticed that in the text. It's a piece of biting sarcasm. It sounds something like this. So, you knew that I reaped where I didn't sow and I gathered where I scattered no seed? Did you? You knew that? I mean, if you thought I was such an unscrupulous, you know, person with such an unscrupulous desire for profit, if I was really like the way you envisioned me, at least you could have put the money in the bank and I would have got it back with interest. Right? That way I'd get my profit and you could cater to your own distorted view of God. But you didn't even do that. You're wicked, God says to him, in your view of me and you're lazy in your handling of my gifts. So, The fact that you or I may have only one talent and not two or not five is not at issue in this text, right? The issue is simply this. We want a correct vision of God's generosity, his goodness, and his bounty, and then we want that same goodness and bounty and generosity to sustain us in faithfulness with the original sum because you have been given the spirit of Christ. You have been given the gift of the kingdom. So... The uh, 18th century political philosopher, Edmund Burke, said this, Nobody makes a greater mistake than he who does nothing because he could only do a little. Do do the little that you've been given to do. And continue to do that little. Let me just close briefly with the application. It's pretty clear. The talent is taken from him, given to the one who has ten. And you're given this... This kingdom principle. Everyone who has. 
Again, it's not just has. Everyone who has here means everyone who has been faithful with the original sum, right? They will be given more and have an abundance. But from the one who has not been faithful, even what they have will be taken away. So again, the parable is driving this home. Faithfulness will be rewarded. And without it, one will not enter the kingdom. Verse 30 makes that clear. And judgment will be, about, be according to works. And barrenness then will lead to destruction. So here we sit during the time when the master's away, during history's long delay. What do we do? What do we ask ourselves? Well, something like this, right? What does our kingdom investment portfolio look like? A lot of guys my age spend a lot of time looking at their actual investment portfolio. They're, they're, you know, they're very good at it. They pour over it. They're moving funds around. They're checking this fund and that fund. And that's all fine. It's all good. But you should be spending a lot of time looking at your eschatological kingdom investment portfolio. Like a lot more time. Fine-tuning that. Right? What, and what would it look like if the master returned today? Because remember, silver and gold themselves are not going to help you on that day. Wealth does not deliver in the day of wrath, Proverbs says, right? This is about God's currency, God's futures. This is using equity that is heavenly in nature and that will stand on that day. This is what we ought to think about. Shaping, and I know many of you do this, but we want to be shaping and forming our lives considering that the master who's away is going to come back and we're going to give an account. A few years ago, there was these... uh, television commercials, I thought they were funny, and uh, there, there was the man on there, he was called the world's most interesting man. Some of you may remember these commercials, right? And he would give this tongue-in-cheek sort of proverbial advice, like he'd look into the camera at the end and, and give, this, give this advice. One of them was these, one of the little proverbs was this, it's never too early to start padding your obituary. Now, that, you know, that's good kingdom advice, right? It is never too early to start padding your obituary, right? The master may delay a long time, but all of us are going to meet him pretty soon, one way or the other. So do business, right? Be busy for the kingdom. Invest the gifts God has given you, whatever it is that you've been given. Start padding your obituary, right? It is the Father's good pleasure, Jesus tells us. Isn't that beautiful? It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And the Father yearns to say to you, when Advent ends, right, when Advent waiting turns to sight, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, the glory, the communion of the holy triune God. Amen. Amen.